This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, Trek FM's dedicated books and comics show. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as he does almost every week is Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going today? I'm doing really well. I have a little bit of news about myself that I'd like to share with you, Dan. All right. What have you got for us this week? (laughs) I I have read so many Star Trek novels and because I'm on the show, I read them even more often. And I've noticed that it was time that I go ahead and get reading glasses. Oh my Goodness. And I keep thinking <laughs> of the Wrath of Khan when Kirk gets his glasses from McCoy. <laughs> oh, let me guess. You're allergic to Retinax 5. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I don't. So, yeah. So I went to the store and I was like, you know, I'm finally going to do this because it's not that. I, I mean, I can read a book without the glasses, but after reading for a period of time, it's like my eyes start to strain a little and stuff. And I thought maybe, maybe I should go ahead and get reading glasses. Cause I don't wear glasses. My whole family, none of us have glasses, but well, my parents do re- use reading glasses, but anyway, so I went into the store and I'm putting, trying on different glasses and they're like, just like so strong. I'm just, Whoa, Whoa. And then I see this chart and it says, start with the lowest setting or whatever the lowest strength at one i was like oh there's different strengths duh (laughs) and so i looked for one that had one on i put it on and it was just like and it said to hold your like phone to read it and i was like and i did that and i mean it just it's not very strong the strength but it's just enough that actually when i was now reading uh drastic measures this weekend it was, it, I could read longer. My eyes weren't straining as long. So I, wow. it, I feel like Kirk when I'm put the glasses on, like, <laughs> here we go. You know? Nice. I mean, I guess something like that's going to happen to us all someday. I, I do notice uh, when somebody, you know, thrusts something in front of my face, oh my God, look at this, you know, and it's right in front of me. I have to 
pull my head back just slightly to get it back in focus. So it's, it's kind of starting for me. So I know sooner or later I'm going to be in the same boat as you there for sure. Yeah. So. But like I said, I don't have to use them all the time. There's times if I don't have them and I'm opening a book, I have no problem reading it. It's just for long time reading. I, it really helps. <laughs> hmm. Right on. Yeah. I'm, I'm like you, I've never worn glasses my whole life. So I'm, I'm curious what that's going to be like when that happens to me. <laughs> yes. Awesome. I, I, I can't find Star Trek uh, branded reading glasses. That's what I really want. <laughs> CBS Consumer Products, if you're listening, there's a there's a niche there. Absolutely. You can exploit it. There's money on the table. I'll model the it. glasses for you, CBS. <laughs> Excellent. Well, regardless of whether or not you need glasses to read it, we will be talking about Dayton Ward's drastic measures today, the newest Star Trek Discovery model. Uh, novel <laughs> and we will of course have Dayton Ward on the show with us to talk about that so really looking forward to that but first we have just a little bit of news this week and it's kind of actually Dayton Ward related as well and that's that the entire Star Trek Vanguard series the Kindle ebooks for each series from amazon.com are on sale right now through the month of month of March I can't speak today through the month of March for 99 cents a piece in ebook format. And that is the entire each book. So Harbinger, Summon the Thunder, Reap the Whirlwind, Open Secrets, Precipice, Declassified, When Judgment Come, When Judgment, sorry, What Judgments Come, Storming Heaven, and In Tempest's Wake. So each of those are available on Amazon.com in ebook format for 99 cents each through the month of March. So if you haven't read Vanguard, this might be a really good time to pick those up and give those a read because they are really excellent books. I really enjoyed Vanguard. And it's one of those series that the authors that worked on it, you can tell how much they enjoyed it because there's just so much love put into those books. You can tell that they really had a wonderful time writing those books. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading them. I read every single one of them and uh i've i just recently finished reading seekers three which is kind of a spinoff from those uh vanguard books so i've got seekers four i need to finish and then i'm done but uh yeah for the whole vanguard series i mean it was i it's the deep space nine of the tos era i mean it's not mm -hmm. it's because it takes place on a space station that's why i see Deep Space Nine, but it has that kind of like long arching stories that are going on uh, from the space station throughout all these books. And so it's, and the characters, characters are just really so developed and there's some, you know, the honorable, honorable Federation characters and the not so honorable <laughs> other characters that are involved. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of those book series that I always thought would make a really great television serialized story. Yeah. and. I think in a lot of the same ways that Discovery is good, I think Vanguard would make a really great story. And it kind of feels like it would be, you know, HBO does Star Trek kind of thing. I don't remember. I remember that coming up in a conversation. I don't know if it was on this show or or something else or maybe live from the edge. But I remember making a comment that, you know, this uh, that Star Trek Discovery, there's aspects of it that remind me of the Vanguard books. Mm hmm. 
yeah, I definitely pick up on those two for sure. So yeah, make sure check out amazon.com, pick up those 99 cent a piece Vanguard novels and who knows, maybe, uh, maybe we'll get those on the schedule and talk about those someday. We don't have current plans to go through them on literary treks, but you know, there's so many books and comics out there that, you know, maybe one day we'll get to these. So hopefully anyway, I'd love to reread them. So, yeah, I mean, there's just so much to reread out there. I don't even know. I mean, our (laughs) list is getting so long that we're going to be here at least through 2023 and it's growing at least. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's knock another book off that list. The most recent new release, Dayton Ward's Star Trek Discovery Drastic Measures. What do you say we go welcome Dayton in and talk about the new book? Yes, let's unlock the door and let him in. So with the recent wrap-up of Season 1 of Star Trek Discovery, we won't get new Star Trek on television until 2019. However, we're not quite done with Discovery yet because there are still novels coming out. And the most recent one, Drastic Measures by Dayton Ward, hit bookshelves a few weeks ago, and we've got the author here to talk about it. So, Dayton, how are you doing today? Hello, guys. How's it going? Not too bad. Glad to have you on again. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk to you guys. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into this one because we've never discussed Discovery with you, so this is a first. This is true. And definitely with uh, with this book, too, Uh lot there's a lot in this book and i think it's going to be a really interesting conversation well we can't we can't have that kind of thing going on i mean it is me after all so the bar is pretty low <laughs> did you say there's a bar yeah yeah where's the bar oh is i'm the on bar board. open <laughs> it must be in the basement if it's low excellent <laughs> Well, so Drastic Measures, of course, as we know, takes place 10 years before uh, what the start of the Star Trek Discovery series, the Battle at the Binary Stars. And this is 10 years before that, and it centers around a famous incident mentioned in Star Trek, specifically uh, in the episode The Conscience of the King, and that's the massacre on Tarsus IV, perpetrated by the infamous Kodos the Executioner. So first off, what made you decide to center the plot around this piece of Star Trek history and the character of Kodos? Well, that wasn't the original plan. Um, When I first started talking to Kirsten Beyer about writing the second Discovery book, um, we didn't really have an – she didn't really have any specific ideas in mind for me uh, at first. Um, She just knew that she wanted me to write a Lorca story. And then as I began getting uh, information from the from the writer's room, so the, the story treatments that for the episodes they were developing and then the first drafts of the you know first few episode scripts, um, I realized I was really starting to take a liking to Giorgio in addition to Lorca. Uh, so I said, I, you know, I, I made my case that I would really like to write a Giorgio story if possible. And uh, it was, uh, I believe it was my editor, Margaret Clark, who suggested, why not do both? So uh, we batted around some ideas on what might bring these two characters together, because uh, the, as you know now, the show doesn't really make any indication whether they met or not in the past before the events of the show. Um, so we were looking for some ideas, and one of the ideas that got tossed around was Tarsus Four, And that was the one that Kirsten really liked. So we talked about it, batted around the details, you know, made sure how things would sync up with the show. And bear in mind that as I'm developing this idea, they're still working on the show. 
they haven't even begun filming at this point. <laughs> so um, there's a lot in flux and, and certain things have not been determined yet. Like, for example, I did not know, and neither did they, or at least they weren't telling me, that who was going to play Lorca. We had no idea. I had no idea. Uh, that happened later. So um, once we decided that this was the way it was going to go, we batted around some ideas for how to anchor it to the continuity of the, you know, the larger Trek continuity, and Tarsus IV was one of the ones that stuck out. So once we decided that, I uh, was given a tremendous amount of latitude to flesh out not only the events of the massacre, but also to add elements of backstory to both Giorgio and Lorca. So when you're writing Lorca and uh, Jason Isaacs isn't cast, is there a particular look or a celebrity that you put to Lorca to write him? And did Jason Isaacs turn out to be what you thought Lorca would be? (laughs) Well, what happened was I was was writing my outline um, before Jason Isaacs was cast. And then uh, he was he was cast before I actually really got too deep into the writing of the actual manuscript. Um, so I knew, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before he actually showed up on set and began shooting um, that it was going to be him. But I had it in my head that he was going to retain his normal accent, you know, his British accent. And, and so did everybody else apparently at that point in time, or at least they weren't waving me off of that or I may have mentioned it and nobody said, no, 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 that's completely wrong. So they let me alone. And then I will never forget this day. Um, I was driving with Kevin. We were on our way out to Denver from Kansas city for the Starfest convention. So it would, it would have been almost this time last year. And um, she calls me on the phone, uh, on my cell phone. And she says, okay, Jason Isaacs is on set. It's his first day shooting. And he has adopted a slightly Southern accent. And I'm like, okay. Um, so that changed how I was thinking about portraying the character in terms of mannerisms, the way he spoke, any slang or jargon he might use, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that was really the only hiccup as far as uh, getting a handle on Lorca was was that little bit of characterization. That was probably the biggest speed bump. Well, speaking of Lorca, and this is kind of a question that's been floating around, and specifically Jen from our Goodreads group wanted to know if you were aware while you were writing this that Lorca the Lorca we see in the television series was from the mirror universe and if like that had come into play at the time of writing this novel yes i knew that it was going i knew that lorca was mirror lorca uh on the show uh i was pretty mm-hmm. clu- i was clued in fairly early on i mean i was spoiled for the whole season before the first episode even aired um so Yes, I knew that it was Lorca. What we did, but it did, of course, generate a lot of discussion because um, even though I had set my novel 10 years before the events of the show, the the question that still has not been answered uh, is when the switch was made. When did Lorca and, 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 you know, when did real Lorca and or prime Lorca and mirror Lorca switch places? And the the thinking is that it happened much closer to the events of the show, obviously. but that has not been spelled out yet, nor, you know, and as far as, you know, what, what may or may not happen with Prime Lorca next year has not been discussed, or at least has not been discussed with me. So, and even if they had, I wouldn't be able to tell you anything anyway. Okay, so you can't really confirm that the, the Lorca in your novel is, in fact, the Prime Lorca then? 
Uh, no, I, sure, I, I, sure. I can confirm that much. It's it's the it's Prime Lorca. Um, that okay. that part was already. I think they spoiled that part on the show on the After Trek talk show that you know the switch was made mm. much closer to the events of the series than my novel is set. So. Okay, well, it's kind of cool because you get the honor. Of, I mean, this is the only piece of you know the quote unquote real Lorca that we've seen would be in this novel. Then that's kind of a a neat little uh, footnote in Trek history here. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird, uh, you know, honor to have. I, mean, I don't know how to explain that to the casual person. It's like, yeah, I wrote the first version of this character. That's the real version. What you've been seeing is an imposter. You know, I'm like, and they're like, whatever. <laughs> you know, and they walk on. So casual <laughs> people who don't watch Star Trek don't care. Um, it was, it was. All us, all us tricky, Trekkies are over the moon, though. That's but, cool. <laughs> um, as far as the characterization, you know, obviously the writers of the show have a, a definitive, they have an idea of, of what prime Lorca is supposed to be like. And so they were able to help me as far as staying on the path of, you know, how to portray the character, uh, the, in, you know, in step with the way they wanted it, what they wanted him. So what is the difference between prime Lorca and mere Lorca? Does one say potato? One says potato. <laughs> one says less filling. One says tastes great. Um, you know, that kind of thing. I've been enjoying your tweets and posts about that actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, because I I did ask I you know in the in the in the week or two leading up to the release of the book I did ask uh, uh, for you know what am I supposed to say <laughs> when they when they start asking me the inevitable question and 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 um, the response at the time was just let people figure it out for themselves and then somebody came right out and said it uh, so I was off the hook at that point so I'm supposed to be all coy and everything and uh, it's been interesting. Um, you know, trying to tiptoe around potential landmines when talking about not just the book, but also the show. Um, because I had, you know, I've interviewed and people were talking to me about the book and asking me about the show. And of course I can't reveal anything about the show that hasn't already been made public, that kind of thing. So it's been an interesting uh, tap dance to do the last several months. That's got to be a bit of a tough situation to be in at times. I'm imagine. so happy the first season's over. <laughs> and the book I and bet. the book is out and I don't have to I don't have to hide as much about stuff. But uh anyone out there who is looking for a laugh, go look at Dayton Ward's Twitter history and just search Lorca and he's got uh tons of differences between the prime and the mirror Lorca on there and uh, there's some really funny stuff. Yeah, that was my way of 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 rebelling against authority slightly. I mean, I I I, I tend to make jokes about Star Trek stuff all the time. And the folks at Pocket Books and CBS are very tolerant of my antics. I, I, I try to stay on the right side of the line, but um, you know, uh, they 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 are tremendously forgiving when I act stupid like that with the with the prime. I mean, they thought they thought a couple of them were funny too. But uh, I mean, I don't mean anything by it, and I and I definitely stay on the line of not crossing over into violating NDAs or anything. So, but it was uh, yeah, it was a bit of fun. So when you were writing. Uh the Tarsus for history and Kodos. I'm just curious, did you pull any ideas from other books that have lightly touched on this subject or did you just start from scratch? No, um, I started from scratch for the most part. I mean, I went back in and I watched the episode and I got as much detail as there was in the episode, which of course there's very little. Um, there's actually very little from the episode that is useful information. And the information that it adds there, you know, 50 years after the episode aired makes you scratch your head. 
um, in terms of things like, oh, his body was burned beyond recognition. Of course, you know, that was 50 years ago. Today we have DNA. <laughs> we have DNA testing that can confirm who a burnt body is, uh, that kind of thing. So I had to make up ways to deal with that, you know, because real science has progressed beyond Star Trek science from the 60s. Um, but as far as the elements of the characters that you see in the book, or, you know, the characters you see in the book and elements of what was going on on the planet after the massacre and all that, that was largely mine um, with some input from Kirsten and Margaret. And also I did draw a little bit from that Federation, the first 150 years, mm. uh, just to kind of lay a little bit of background about how the plague may have started. That was the, that was the one reference I went back to. And I think I took a little bit, I did look, I think in general, in a general broad stroke fashion, I did take a little bit from uh, the Kirk autobiography book that David Goodman wrote. Uh, not everything meshed a hundred percent. And the two, the two books don't even mesh a hundred percent with each other. Um, but I did use uh, at least in the broad strokes uh, components from both of those tellings. Yeah, I was wondering about that because we just recently read that this fall when it came out. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was going to go back and read read some of that, and I still might, and just see you know where it might all fit together and where there's some differences. So, uh, but I, I would think for the most part, most part, they probably work. They work. Well together. I think they work together in the broad strokes. I mean, yeah. In in my case, I did deviate a little bit for the purposes of of uh, making this a discovery story. But I try, but definitely tried to stay in step with what we know from the episode about the incident, which, of course, as I said, is precious little. Um, yeah, I, I mind it for all it was worth. And then I, you know, once I had those five words, I had to make up the rest of it. Speaking of kind of the fate of Kodos, you mentioned like in the episode, they talk about the body burned uh, beyond rec recognition. And of course, we know from that episode that Kodos did survive and there was a little bit of switcheroo happening there. I was wondering given that you know the character's ultimate fate and kind of the journey that Lork is on in relation to that, did, was that something that aided in putting together the story for this novel or did it kind of make it more difficult in order to make it all kind of fit and work out properly? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it was easy. I mean, it was, it was a little bit easy because again, yeah, like you say, we know where it all ends up eventually, ultimately. Uh, but at the same time, again, some of the things when you look at it with the modern eye don't work at least by themselves you have to sort of help them out a little bit or prop them up a little bit so yeah it was both easy and yet challenging at the same time because i had to come up with a way to honor what the episode tells us but yet have it make sense to a modern reader who knows about csi and dna testing and all that kind of thing you know modern forensics and modern you know modern investigation techniques and things like that yeah, I found that was a really elegant solution. And I mean, I guess we're kind of getting into spoilers here pretty early on. So uh, FYI, anyone who's listening, if you haven't read this book, you should grab it. Uh, get it open, get it read. Uh, we're getting into spoilers here. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that but, makes uh, us a batting a thousand with me spoiling the book early in the interview, right? I've done that every time <laughs> we've talked. So That's totally okay. okay. <laughs> I mean, I think you guys put a special section and a special rule in because of me, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The ward we rule. call it the the ward rule. Dayton yeah. ward war war war, yeah. war Dayton ward rule. I can't even say it. <laughs> it's just the rule. If you can't say it, you can't enforce it. 
Exactly. There you go. It's always a loophole. <laughs> well, uh, but yeah, so that was really elegant solution. So there's kind of a, a switcheroo and I really like, cause I was curious when I was reading and they analyzed the DNA and they said, Oh yeah, nope, that's definitely Kodos, but he's gone and, and altered the medical records and kind of made a switch with his right hand man and his DNA records. So I thought that was because, you know, that is something like you said that writers in the sixties wouldn't have thought of. It wouldn't be something that would even occur to them. And nowadays there's just so much more, to do in that area to make it all work. I thought that was really well. Yeah, I mean, you know, we live in an era where everybody who's a potential juror, you know, is is a self-proclaimed expert in criminology because they've (laughs) watched every episode of CSI or NCIS or any one of those other shows that has a lot of this stuff in it. And so, you know, most people know what DNA can be used for. If they don't watch those shows, then they watch Forensic Files or they watch The First 48 or some other true crime show so yeah and of course dna wasn't even a thing at least not a known thing back in the 50s or the 60s -hmm. so uh yeah you know those are the fun things that you have to do with when you're dealing with a property like star trek where the real you know real world science and real world space exploration and other events have superseded what was described on the show way back when I, i typically don't bring this up on uh on shows when we're talking about the title of a book, but drastic measures. And I think I recall that being said in the book somewhere. So why call it drastic measures? Is that a good framing title to describe what this book is about? Well, I mean, it's, it comes directly from the speech that Kodos gives before he issues the mm-hmm. order to execute the colonists. Spoiler alert. So he knows this is the, the, the revolution <laughs> has been successful, but drastic measures are required to, to ensure the survival of the colony. So that's where I pulled the title from. Um, what's funny is that once I announced, or once it was announced that Drastic Measures was going to be the title, of course, you know, this is on the heels of Dave's book, uh, Desperate Hours. So, of course, everybody's wondering what the third book's going to be, you know, Disco Fever or uh, Danger Zone or whatever it was. We were, we were tossing around as joke titles for book three. Um, but in reality, Dave actually had a different title for his book going into his writing, and he changed it from that title to desperate hours at some point after I had decided on drastic measures. So we're like, everybody's going to wonder what the deal is with the title, you know, the the title uh, template. I'm kind of loath to admit this, but before we started recording, I had the book in front of me and just repeated drastic measures, drastic measures, drastic measures, because I've been calling it desperate Desperate measures, measures, drastic drastic hours. hours. If you open up the cover of that front blurb there, the, 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 the teaser blurb that's right there inside the front cover. I think it actually has Kodos's speech uh, and it Mm -hmm. has including the drastic measures reference. And speaking of Kodos speech, I've always, it's always been fascinating to me because of that particular language where he says the revolution has been successful. And I always kind of wondered what the story around that was. And I really like how you're able to kind of bring that in and Kodos mindset and, and what he's doing. Maybe if you could talk a little bit about how he approaches this situation and what what he's trying to accomplish beyond just the supposedly altruistic measures of saving everybody else in the colony. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. We can't we can't excuse what he did. There's really there's no mm-hmm. there's no good way to spin this. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the best the best villains are the ones who think they're acting for noble reasons. You know, even if they're even if they're out of their minds, they still think that they're the good guy in this equation. 
so that was that was sort of where I started with with Kodos was you know he believed he was right uh, it's to some degree whether he eventually in you know in in uh, experiences self doubts or second guesses himself which you know I have him do in the book I would expect that to happen from someone who's not a completely raving psychopath um, so I started there and then as far as the revolution I, I there was that uh, that's the only reference to that in the original episode they don't give any sort of context to that. So we have no idea what that meant. Um, and so when I was talking about it with Margaret, we were trying to decide which way we were really going to go. And we decided that the revolution in this sense would be sort of metaphorical. You know, it's not like a, an uprising or a civil war between the colonists. It would be more of an ideological revolution. You know, it's like, okay, we got, we got thrust into this situation against our will. And now look how we're paying for the, the paying the price for it. So we're going to take back, you know, what's left of our life on this planet and proceed forward from there. So that's how we decided to go from there or from that idea. You know, I watched the conscious of the King probably when I was about a quarter of the way through the book. Sometimes when I read books and I know it's a spinoff or refers to an episode, it prompts me to want to watch the episode. And Watching that episode and knowing what they described happened was always disturbing. And Dayton, don't take offense, but I find your book to be disturbing. <laughs> well, that's good. That was, <laughs> you were supposed to find it that way. <laughs> I mean, it really has like all this weight to like, the, it really hits home when you think about, wow, there's 8,000 colonists and 4,000 are just killed. Just like, just like that. And then I also like the way you tied in how there was a different colony brought to the planet, that they wasn't just a colony of these 8,000, they just separated them, but there was an infusion of two different colonies brought together, and so there was already some discomfort between these two groups. Right. If you are feeling it at all, like there might be a parallel to anything relating mm -hmm. to current events with respect to, let's say, the relocation of refugees from war-torn countries or immigration debates go with that feeling because that is what fueled a lot of that uh, a way to speak to obliquely speak to you know the sort of things we're dealing with right now and how refugees are a legitimate real world concern and yet they're being shunned you know or they're being reluctantly taken in or people feel like they're being forced to take them in or have them resettle in their communities and then of course the animosity that springs up from those circumstances. Yeah, that was a total, yeah, I'd be lying if I said, no, I didn't at all think at all about that while I was writing that book. No, that's crap. I completely was thinking about that the whole time I was writing the book. Mm -hmm. And the the scapegoating that inevitably sure. comes out of that too was was heart-wrenching, I think, because it, like you say, it's so familiar. Oh yeah, we, we, we talked about it uh, and how to lay that in there without, without, I mean, I didn't want to beat anybody over the head with it, but it, it was, to me, the parallels were obvious. Once we started to flesh out the backstory of how the colonists got themselves or were thrust into this set of circumstances to begin with. Because, again, we had nothing to work with from the episode. Um, all they said but there was there was a plague and 4,000 colonists had to get killed in order to save the other half. They don't say why. They never explain anything going into that decision. So I had a pretty clean slate so far as figuring out Kodos' motivations. There's a little bit that we learn, of course, about this incident in The Conscience of the King. And of course, like you said, there's 4,000 colonists made up of, of families and just a whole bunch of people. But one thing we learn in The Conscience of the King, of course, was that Kevin Riley 
from the Enterprise was there as well. Was there ever any kind of thought given to including him in the story at all? I gave it some thought and then ultimately decided against it because um, at that point in time, I thought he would be too young to really make a contribution to the story. Uh, in other mm. words, uh, and I already had a character who was sort of filling that very young child role that I was playing off Giorgio. Um, so, it, at, it, and plus there was always, there's also the conscious, uh, I have to be re- re- conscious of the fact that this was not an original series novel or an enterprise novel. This was a discovery novel. So I had to keep the focus on the discovery characters. Um, and I saw so bogging, bogging it down with too many cameos from other treks felt wrong to me in this particular instance. So if I was going to cameo somebody, it was obviously going to be Kirk. I can, I think that almost maybe lends a little bit more to the story too, because, you know, you think about all of the lives that this affected, it wouldn't make sense to kind of have them all pop up in the story, just kind of almost that knowledge that there's so many people that it affects that you right. can't even mention. And that's also story. why I did not go with the initial impulse to include any mention of uh, Hoshi Sato and her family. I mean, there's some debate mm-hmm. about whether it actually happened or not. And, you know, if you if you know the story that for the Mirror Universe Enterprise episodes, Mike Sussman wrote a bio for Hoshi Sato that the Mirror version sees and or Mirror Archer sees mm-hmm. and that, you know, it says that her she and her family were, were among the colonists that were killed on Tarsus four. And, yeah. but that part of her bio never makes it to the screen. It's it's, he wrote Sussman wrote it, but it's never in the final version of the episode that you see on screen. Uh, believe me, I checked, I freeze framed the Blu-ray and everything. <laughs> and, uh, I took a snapshot of it to make sure I had the proof, you know, when, when, the, when the inevitable debate started, and uh, so once it was inconclusive that she was there, but it was an interesting aside as far as the trivia, um, you know, I thought, well, okay, there's still 4,000 other colonists, you know, on the planet and 4,000 colonists that get killed. And so I left it inconclusive on purpose for her uh, so that it can go either way at some point mm-hmm. in the future. If somebody chooses to defend it, to believe this, you know, map out what happened to her later on after the events of Enterprise, then it's an open book for that, for that writer. There you go, folks. It's not canon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty close. I mean, you know, it's about as close as you can get when you're talking about someone who wrote for the show and actually created the material to be used on the show, but then it never actually makes it to the final shot of that inset picture of, you know, the the bio on the screen. Uh, yeah, because somebody was arguing that it was absolutely there. They were absolutely sure of it. And I'm, I'm loaded the Blu-ray going, nope. Not at all. Not even close. <laughs> uh, and I have the proof. So, yeah, I mean, it was uh, – and then once it, once it wasn't definitive, I thought, well, which way should I go? And then I fell back on my idea of I don't want to overload this thing with too many cameos. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my uh, favorite cameos in here, uh, really great character, and I wish we would have gotten more of her, was Trek FM's own Charlene Schmidt. Yeah, misspelled last name. Yeah, I know. I, I totally screwed that pooch. I don't even know how that happened. So my heart was in the right place. I just didn't. I didn't verify my facts apparently, or I I yeah. changed it during an edit. I don't. I have no idea. But that's okay because this isn't the real Charlene Schmidt. So I'm sure she yelled. She she was very profane in my direction when she saw that. So so sorry, sorry. 
the other thing I found interesting when I was going into this book, because it takes 10 years before Discovery, I thought, well, I wonder what the uniforms look like. Are they the ones that we see on Discovery or are they the ones that we see more of like on the cage or even from the Kelvin in the Kelvin universe? You know, and, and I liked how you never really called out what the uniforms were. I make hints to, you know, that, that, that it's a two piece uniform and then there's a top that you can take off and that kind of thing. But I don't, I don't come down one way or the other because, um, they have not, they had not decided as far as any backstory they're going to fill in. They had not yet come down on what the uniforms may have looked like 10 years prior. So, uh, I left it vague on purpose. Cool. Yeah, I, I did notice that that there was kind of it never really got pinned down, which I kind of appreciated in, because yeah. in my head, in my head though, I they were dressed in the Discovery uniforms or a variant of the Discovery uniform, a slight variant or whatever. I mean, it was in in my brain that's what I saw. And as far as the weapons they carry, in my head they were totally carrying the Discovery phaser rifles and phaser pistols. Um, because if for no other reason than they're really they really look cool. really cool. <laughs> yeah, they are cool. Well, um, one literary device that I enjoyed in this was the um, every so often you'd get a chapter of this book within a book, kind of a history of the massacre of Tarsus Four, and also the revelation at the end who the author is, I thought was really well done and, and brought a smile to my face. What made you kind of decide to use that as a literary device to frame the story around? I came up with the idea back during... Um it was actually last summer i came up with the idea to use the literary device and because i was talking to Ke i remember talking to kevin about it and kevin is the one who gave me the title the 4000 um hmm. because what i wanted was to evoke sort of a i don't know if you've read it but uh max brooks world war z where basically oh, yeah. it's just a series of interviews with people who survived the zombie war and absolutely one of my yeah, favorite in, books in my yeah. original idea i wanted the 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 writer the narrator or the, the 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 interviewer to not be a character um it was just going to be you know a, a voice that facilitates what you hear from the interviewee uh so i wanted to affect that sort of approach because i'm that's again that's one of my favorite books too it's such a well done book um and a very captivating and if you've never done it, I suggest or I, I highly recommend the audiobook version because uh, mm -hmm. it's just is if, if you it's better than the book itself because of the it's a full cast audio drama and and they really throw themselves into it. Um, Agreed. Oh, so yeah. it's fantastic. <laughs> so that was what I wanted. I wanted that approach, but it was Kirsten who came back and said that she wanted the book writer to be a character, and, and she suggested it be the girl. So I had to end up, so I went back into my revisions and I wrote that tag scene at the end where she is with Giorgio on the Shenzhou. That was, that was all Kirsten's idea. Interesting. Yeah. I, I like that. I also, and, and it's interesting you bring up World War Z because that's perfect. I also kind of imagined in my head, this book being adapted into some sort of, uh, something that I would have loved to have seen World War Z adapted into actually it would be like one of those television shows where they do the recreation yeah. of what's going on with the kind of silent actors while there's a narrator talking over the, my, my, you know, yeah, recreation. my idea was that they should have adapted it the way they made the miniseries, uh, band of brothers. You know, where they open oh, with yeah. the interviewer who is the or the interviewee is the older version of the, the you know, the, the real the real people who fought in the war as they are today. And then the rest of the episode is the mm -hmm. flashback with the events that they were in. 
and that could have that would have provided the form for having the action in the, that you would need in a in a in a movie or a television show instead of it just being a documentary. Um, but yeah, that was I really love that approach as far as interviewing and 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 that's and recalling the events through the interviewers the interviewees' eyes. That was what I wanted for those chapters. And then uh, yeah, it was Kirsten that totally nailed it with the idea of having Shannon be the author. It it really did evoke that same feeling, you know, watching like you said, Band of Brothers or something like that, where, you know, that kind of uh, narration. And I was thinking, complete with the Kodos is alive, quote unquote, conspiracy dun, dun, dun. theory, it would just they be perfect Kodos on the History Channel. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with those chapters. Once I figured out what I wanted, once Kevin gave me the the uh, the title, which is so perfect because it's so simple, and in, the title itself is sort of a, veiled homage to uh when you when you say when you refer to the colonists as the four thousand you know the, the, the massacre colonists to me that's almost like a, a sly salute to the 50 which is the 50 prisoners from uh the, the german pow camp who were killed after the events of the great escape they, they're referred to generally as the 50 because the germans you know once they recaptured all the prisoners that had made the escape they killed 50 of them and then uh, they were those people were pursued later for war crimes the, the speaking of the, the, the discovery characters, so Giorgio and, and Lorca, some of my favorite scenes in this book was the relationship between the two of them. And I mean, they weren't real close; they didn't know each other all that well. But uh, you know, there, Lorca did seem to have some issues, as what was hinted at in the later series. Even though we now know that he was the mere Lorca in the series, but this isn't mere Lorca. So I'm just curious how you approached the Giorgio Lorca relationship based on the fact that you'd only have the scripts and we only, we never saw the two prime characters together. Uh, again, that was a lot of, I had a lot of help with, uh, from Kirsten about how to do this, how these events affected these two individuals in different ways. And the idea that, um, you know, Lorca is is personally affected by the tragedy, uh, so he's he's hurting uh, and angry by what happened, and he you know is obviously he has you know vengeance on his mind, so to speak, uh, but yet he's trying to he's trying to keep it in check and do his job, whereas you know Giorgio is coming in as the first responder, trying to maintain order and uphold Starfleet values and so on and so forth. And then as they start to work together and occasionally are at odds with one another, their viewpoints begin to meld a bit and eat and then overlap and kind of shift toward the other's point of view slightly. So there's a point in the book where, you know, Lorca, ha Lorca you know, vows that he'll bring him to justice and not exact vengeance. Whereas Giorgio, as the book goes on, is like, you know, find that bastard. <laughs> you know, she's, she's not, she's not as worried about the, the, the keeping, you know, everything above board. Let's get him, you know, she's not ready to cross that line, but she's getting really close to it at this, at, you know, late in the book. Uh, so that was a discussion that came out of a discussion that I had with uh, Kirsten or many discussions that I had with Kirsten as far as how to, how to put these two at odds at, for, you know, at odds with each other, but yet end up working together uh, and then coming away with a grudging respect for each other, and yet still maintain mm -hmm. some some space there because I don't at the time it was not decided how, when, or if these two characters had ever connect you know on screen knew each other. So I was trying to again tap dance around a lot of unknowns. 
Well, right. it's interesting too because when you've written other Star Trek novels based on TV series, you've had you've had that advantage of getting to know the characters on the series and seeing them and and visualizing and hearing the voices. And I would think that writing this novel, even though you had read the scripts or knew the storylines, would be similar to writing an original Star Trek novel series like Vanguard, where you know, everybody is approaching it from more of a literary standpoint and not from a visual standpoint. Right. Yeah. It was, there was a lot of that. It was, it was more like writing one of the spinoff novels like Vanguard or Seekers than it was writing next gen or original series or one of the other shows. And, you know, as I've explained in other interviews, the challenge here was not only this is the first time I've written a Star Trek novel where the show is in active production, and not only that, but the show was in development at the same time I was writing my novel. They were still working out the kinks. They were still going through their own growing pains. They were still figuring out what worked and what did not work. And sometimes they would make a change as, as happens, you know, as part of the organic process. And it's, it's not, I was not affected significantly think, you know, as it ended up happening. I mean, I, I may have had to make a couple of minor changes, but it was nothing that made me rewrite whole sections of the book or rethink whole sections of the book. I got very lucky on that. But yeah, it was just a different vibe because, again, I'm, I don't have the benefit of an entire television show that has ended its run to draw on as far as characterizations and relationships between characters and, and things like that. I had to totally wing it in some regards, just like we would if we were writing an original novel or a Star Trek novel that's not based on one of the shows. And I'm assuming that's probably part of the reason why it's set kind of so separate from the series. Oh, I totally did that on purpose. I said, I'm going to write a prequel and I'm going to set it (laughs) 10 years before, you know, or whatever it was. I I didn't say that to begin with. I just said, I'm going to set it well before the events of the show and hopefully avoid all the landmines and booby traps that are there by trying to set it too close to the show. And uh, so I was spared. Hopefully not have to rewrite the whole thing at some point. (laughs) Exactly. So I, you know, I, I, I did that, believe me, on purpose. This was not an accident <laughs> that I chose to go back that far. <laughs> well, one of the effects of that decision, of course, is that you're creating a lot of original characters, too. Uh, for me, one that I really ended up liking was uh, Jen, the Betazoid character. And I loved how you kind of played with that, like, do they or don't they know what Betazoids can do? And how she's kind of, uh, you know... What are you, psychic or something? Yeah. Or something? Well, I mean, it was. Uh, <laughs> I really like that. I think that, that was actually Margaret Clark's idea was to include a Betazoid character, mm. and uh, because I definitely wanted to include some alien characters amongst my little group of Starfleet officers, but you know, TOS was somewhat limited with the number of alien species that were in Starfleet, and you know, we we kind of pushed the boundaries of what you could get away with in that time frame with Vanguard and. Uh, seekers and uh, the comics did it with early voyages uh, and in fact if you if you you may have caught it there's a reference about there being a Vulcan and a Lyran on the Enterprise uh, and the Lyran is of course yeah. the character from the <laughs> early voyages comic um, but I, my original idea was to include a Kelpian uh, and you know, I was, uh, and it was and it was a smart move to avoid doing that in retrospect because that way Saru uh, ends up being just a very cool character with his own spotlight throughout the run of the first season. Um, so I'm glad I I'm glad I took that advice and did not include a new Kelpian character and not taking away the spotlight from Saru. Well, I love that one line, and I can't remember which character says it, but she's talking about the Denobulan fellow officer of hers, and she says, "Why is it every species we humans meet 
you know, it can do something way yeah. better than us. And I'm thinking of this Betazoid. I'm like, oh, you yeah, have you have no, no idea. idea. <laughs> yeah, it was that. That was a little. Yeah, I uh, the the, the Nobulans are a safe bet. You can include the Nobulian, the Nobulian or the Nobulans. God, I can't say it anymore. The Nobulians. Um, <laughs> you can include those in the uh, pre-TOS books because, uh, or in TOS and in earlier books, you, we because we get I Enterprise to cover us for that one. But um, you know, it gets the the list of potential aliens in Starfleet at least on screen is very short in the TOS era. So <laughs> we were mentioning not that long ago that we're starting to see more Denoblians in, in the different novels now. And I, when I saw that, I was like, there's another one. Yeah. I'm going to start counting. Well, them, I mean, you know? Kevin and I did that years ago. We, we, uh, we introduced um, uh, a Dr. Trop, Dr. Trope, Dr. Trop in the, in the next gen novels. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, 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 a, as an assistant CMO on the enterprise working with Dr. Crusher. And then, one of us got the harebrained idea to include a younger version of that character in the Seekers novels, uh, which oh, yeah. not everybody catches that <laughs> reference, but um, most most <laughs> people who are the hardcore readers, obviously they get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Denobulans are, are fair game. They're they're awesome. Bring those guys in. Was there a Denobulan engineer as well in on the Sagittarius uh, or something? Or there was a... It was not on the Sagittarius. On the Sagittarius, it's a human engineer. Um, there was a, there oh, okay. was a, there's a Tellarite engineer on the Endeavor. Oh, okay. Yeah. That might be what I'm thinking of. You know, Bruce, we need to go do the Vanguard novels, uh, on these. Yeah, shows, you I do. Think. And you know, they're 99 really cents in Kindle series. format and Nook format all this month. They are. We actually <laughs> mentioned that at the, in the news segment at the top of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, uh, we need to talk about, a section in this book that I think maybe some people, if they're not paying attention and aren't careful, might have missed. And that's this section at the very back after the about the author, after the acknowledgments that just says elsewhere. And I'm really curious about this chapter. So we can assume that the person in question is the prime Lorca because of the, the little fortune that he pulls out ties back to earlier in the novel where is this taking place and when, if you're able to answer those? <laughs> it's not on the page. I can't answer that. Uh, it's written that ah. way on purpose. Um, uh, what's funny is what you're reading, was it, what does it end up being, like three to four pages? My original yeah, draft of that like scene that, yeah. was about double that. And hmm. it was very surgically edited. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, and to remove um, various uh, clues as to where he is and how long he has been there and who his hosts are, um, a lot of that mm. was removed. And and since it was removed, I am not at liberty to share <laughs> what I wrote. Um, <laughs> no, 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 because it's removed. That means it's scrapped. Yeah, okay, it's, well, it's trash. You, you, you clear that with CBS, and I'll be happy to talk about it. But there, I can see the ninja <laughs> looking in through my window from the hedge right now. The CBS NDA to protector ninjas are out there. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. no, it was it's it was written that way and was left that way on purpose as to to kind of spark discussion and uh, whether or not we get to revisit that is anybody's guess at this point. Interesting. That's that's about the level of information I figured I'd get from you <laughs> on that. I, I mean, I have some guesses as to what's going on. Now, you guys on can guess all is, you want, but... and I'll be happy to sit here and not say a thing in response to any of your ideas. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I'm also wondering if this is a question you can answer. Where did the idea for that 
last little bit come from? Was that something you came up with or was that something that uh, came from someone The idea else? was a mutual discussion between myself and Kirsten and Margaret. And it was my idea to pitch it as a post-credit scene. Um, I just love the mm-hmm. idea of that. I have always wanted to do something like that. I mean, you've seen similar approaches to that in other books, but there's usually, there are usually a tease for an upcoming novel. Like, you know, here's an exclusive excerpt from the next novel in this series or, or something like that. I don't know that there's any real, I can't recall any offhand examples of a legitimate prose version of a post-credit scene, like in a Marvel movie, you know? where there's this unrelated scene that's just a tag at the end of the film after the credits have, have finished rolling. I don't, I can't think of any examples. Somebody said that they've seen something similar, but I've never been able to find it, at least not in a Star Trek novel. Um, so when I floated that idea, I got really excited about, Hey, well, nobody's ever done this before. I want to be the first one to do this. And um, they went with the <laughs> idea and I said, it's gotta be, and I, and I kept pushing it's, it's, it's gotta be after everything. It's gotta be after the acknowledgements and the, about the author and any advertisements you throw back there and whatever else you've got, it's gotta be the last two or three pages in the book, you know, and, and, and so that anybody who's not paying attention will miss it and then have to go back and read it when they start, when they see people talking about it online. Um, that's what I wanted. <laughs> and, and then the best part yeah. of this was when I got emailed by the, the lady at Simon and Schuster audio, cause they were getting to, they were prepping the audio book. And uh, they were getting ready to sit down with the with the voice actor Robert Peckoff and do the recording. And she said, "Now you're sure you want this scene at the very end, <laughs> after the about the author and after the acknowledgments and after the you know the credits for the audio presentation?" I said, "Yeah, it's got to be the very last thing you you hear in that program." And uh, yeah, oh, it was brilliant. I didn't even think of the audio. Yeah, when, I didn't brilliant. either until she she asked me about it. I'm like, "Oh my god, that's awesome! We have to do that." And uh, when I when I laid out the reasoning, she was totally on board and excited about doing it. She's like, "Oh yeah, this is gonna be cool because it'll be funny because they'll you know oh, if you're looking at it as a digital download and you're looking at the the uh, listing in your iPod or your iPhone or whatever you're listening on, you're gonna see the number of tracks and of course the book will end, but yet there's this extra track at the end that hasn't been played and you're like, what the hell am I reading or what am I listening to? And that's what, that was the effect I wanted. So it's as close to a Marvel post-credit scene as you can get in a novel. I think that's awesome. I think, you know, most Marvel moviegoers have been trained to stay. Most are, but there's always that one guy that gets up. Oh, you always get, yeah. You shake your head as they're walking out going, you don't even know. But yeah, hopefully we can train some people to flip yeah. right it's to like the back. Friends, of the don't, because... friends don't let friends leave a Marvel movie before the credits run, you know. <laughs> so this talk about Marvel, I think this is a hint that the character at the end of the book is actually Stan Lee. At least that's how I'm going Thanos, to it's Thanos, right? <laughs> I, I, yeah. yeah and, and, the, and, the, and the paper is actually one of the Infinity Stones. And then, 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 you know, then uh, Nick Fury pokes his head in the cell and asks him if he wants to join the Avengers. Well, there is kind of one more cameo appearance that we didn't mention that I should bring up. And that's, of course, we get at the end, one of Starfleet's vaunted brand new Constitution class starships shows up, the Enterprise commanded by Captain Robert April. And uh, I really enjoyed your characterization of April. Uh, of course, we see him in the animated series in the Counterclock Incident. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm thinking some of the characterization of him in this book comes from some other novels that have been written in the past. Yeah, and, and this is actually one of the, one of the bits from uh, the Federation book, the first 150 years, because they say that the Enterprise is one of the ships that arrives later. 
to help out with the crisis. Oh, okay. And at that point, it would have been under Captain April's command. So mm-hmm. I decided to keep that. Uh, and, and at this point, I don't think I had yet seen the script for the last episode of season one. So I did not yet know there was going to be that cameo at the end of that episode. Um, mm-hmm. So I went with this. And then as far as the characterization for Robert April, that is totally a hat tip to Diane Carey's portrayal of the character from her novels, Final Frontier and Best Destiny, um, mm-hmm. which are favorites of mine. And uh, Greg Cox has also used that a similar characterization anytime he's written an April story, you know, since those two books were published. So, yeah, absolutely. Right down to the cardigan, you know, that he wears over his uniform. That is totally <laughs> Diane Carey. Uh, that's a total tribute to Diane Carey. Yeah, I totally caught that one. We actually did uh, Best Destiny on the show uh, a few months ago. Uh, so we, we haven't done Final Frontier yet, but we should probably get to that at some point i really like that that character in those novels and even though he's in this book for just a short period of time he really i don't know all of that just came flooding back like the kind of character he is so that was really cool to see it was just a nice little oh yeah, yeah. That guy. well i mean <laughs> i'm a I'm, i've been reading the novels just forever i mean going back to the bantam novels from the 70s so uh i know that you know, we, we know that the canon on screen has has overwritten the events that are portrayed in many of these novels from the 80s and and, and the, that, that period. Um, but several of those novels from that period are, are still favorites of mine. And so if mm-hmm. I can't acknowledge all the events as they occurred in the novels, I always I still like to give them their proper due by, you know, using a characterization or using a name or using a character or something like that to acknowledge um you know those books that came before uh that's just me being a fan and finding a way to warm that kind of thing in there mm-hmm. and we also had the uh his medical doctor on hand too mm-hmm. right again <laughs> consistent with what we've seen what, i mean that was consistent that part at least was consistent with the cartoon and i'm sorry i'm sorry animated mm-hmm. episode and uh also diane carey's uh portrayal of their of the of that setup well uh i'm I can't speak for anyone else, but I really hope that this particular novel becomes the favorite of a lot of people because I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was really excellent to get to see that historical event from the eyes of kind of people on the ground and and put it in a context that includes Star Trek Discovery. It was really cool. I'm glad you like it. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun to write. Definitely a challenge, but a lot of fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And and it was interesting because of the connection it has to a TOS episode. So it gives you background to a TOS episode, yet it's involving characters from Discovery. So it's a nice blend, like, you know, converging those two different series and universes together. And so that was a, that was a lot of fun. Well, that was something that Dave and I both mm-hmm. talked about when we were working on our books was that, you know, this is an opportunity to help anchor discovery to the larger framework the larger trek framework um and do it respectfully and not trip over anything you know that's that's one of the problems with a, with a prequel you know is that there are going to be inconsistencies introduced just by the fact that you're you're creating you know a show 50 years after the show that it's supposed to come before or whatever and it's like yeah we, we can't get away we can't get around those kinds of things but we can definitely find ways to sort of stitch it together and and try to make it fit as best as possible you know as seamlessly as possible 
given the, given the practicality mm-hmm. and the realities and, and stuff like that. So we're both huge fans of the original series. We're both, you know, we both love the original show and we both want to do right by it and, uh, and not, not just push it aside because it's no longer the fresh new thing. It's like, nope, it's, you know, it's still the original show. It's still the one that was there first. It, it has its, you know, we have to give it its just due and we're both fans. So we're not, it's not like you're forcing us to do this. It's not like it's a hard job to do. I mean, it's fun to find ways to thread these things in there. Oh, definitely. I'm I'm a huge fan of this this massive shared universe that you know you guys get to play in and we get to read about and watch. So it's it's always fun when that stuff gets tied tighter together. It, you know, it it just it adds so much more when you're watching these episodes to kind of have this backstory built into it both for discovery and the original series. Yeah, I mean, now, so. I, I'm I'm obviously biased because I've been I got to watch the show come together almost from the very beginning. I mean, it was I knew that Kirsten was on the writing staff like December of 2015. And so we spoke, you know, at regular intervals throughout uh, the you know 2016 you know all, at least the first three quarters of the year while I was writing the book so I got to watch the show come together and uh, not 2016 20 yeah 2016 I got to watch a lot of that come together and then when I got the novel gig later in I mean I was under contract to write the book in the summer of 2016 and I didn't really start writing it until late 2016 early 2017 so I mean I've I was I was watching from the sidelines pretty much from the beginning. So I'm very biased about the show because uh, I watched it come together and I watched all the work that they put into it and the effort they put into it. And we had, you know, numerous conversations about uh, how it fits with the larger Trek mythology and uh, even just, you know, despite the fact that it's updated and it looks modern and that kind of thing. It's like, no, they, they did take great pains to make sure that it's that it sits in its proper place in the timeline. Um, so, you know, I, that's why I don't have a lot of tolerance for people who dismiss it out of hand as being some cheap cash in, or it's disrespecting the canon and all that crap like now. It's not, they may make a mistake or something, but it's, it's, it's a mistake. That's not, it's not malice. You know, it's just happens sometimes. And, but it's definitely not due to lack of effort or lack of caring. Yeah, no. And if, if you're at all, even half paying attention, it shows, I mean, I I think at this point with the first season done, anyone who, you know, would, would just dismiss it like that is just, yeah, we're just trolling. I'm as hardcore (laughs) and protective of the original show as you're going to find among fandom. I mean, I'm not, not, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, and I, I saw what they were doing and what they were trying to do. And I was excited by the storyline, you know, very early on. So they won me over pretty early. And then when they asked me to write the book, I'm like, well, hell yeah, I want to write the book. Are you kidding? This is too much fun to pass up. Uh, you're going to give it to somebody else, right? No way. Not that. So, Well, do you have anything coming up on the horizon that our listeners should know about uh, Star Trek or otherwise? I have all this stuff coming up, but I can't talk about any of it. It's weird. I'm in this weird zone where I'm working on stuff, but it hasn't been formally announced. And um, uh, so I'm not at liberty to discuss details about any of it. Uh, I've got two books that are coming out later this year that are Star Trek related. Uh, they're not novels, but they are Star Trek related, and uh, they're due out in the summer, but they have not yet been formally announced. Um, I have another book that I just handed the manuscript in that's also a Star Trek book that'll be out in early 2019 um, that has not yet been announced. And um, I'm also working on a tie-in novel for another property for another publisher 
that has not been announced. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm also we yeah, can't be friends. Yeah, it's just, we, it's we, weird. I'm like, I've, I've got like four, five, six things going right now, and I can't talk about any of them. Um, <laughs> and I've got another project. Yeah. Well, they know you're good I've at got that. Another at project least. that I'm doing for uh, uh, another firm that's not a tie-in in the strict sense, but it is work for hire because it's it's a it's a universe they've created. Uh, they created the characters in the setting, and then they gave me their Bible and said, "Can you write um, a story featuring all this stuff?" And we're gonna—it's—it's it's for uh, online, you know, like uh, your—it's a—it's a special application that's, or it's a special app that's designed to work with marrying prose to graphics, uh, like an illustrated novella, uh, and sound effects and music and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm writing the prose portions of it, and they're gonna marry that up with art and 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 sound effects and whatnot that you can access on your on your mobile device um it's it's a science fiction story but um again i can't talk about it in detail because it hasn't been announced yet um so yeah i'm, I'm basically toiling in anonymity right now very cool well when you do have news uh on those two announce where can people find you online to get all those juicy tidbits <laughs> once all that happens i will be babbling you know, until my until I'm oxygen starved at uh, DaytonWard.com, uh, which is my blog and my social media launch pad to uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other links to my writing. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's always great to talk about novels with you. And especially, like I say, this one I think was a lot of fun. Uh, dark subject matter, but very, very cool and I think our readers would really enjoy it. So if you haven't already picked this up, what are you doing? You just got it all spoiled. But if you still want to read it, and you should, go grab it. <laughs> yeah, after all this, if you're still convinced you want to read it, uh, yeah, you can find it at any major retailer. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank oh, you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, guys. I always have fun here. So it's really funny to me how these Discovery books actually don't take place on discovery but we're getting to know the discovery characters prior to the series which is a lot of fun yeah it is kind of funny i mean you know discoveries there in big letters on the cover of course but yeah no starship discovery at all it's kind of like and and you mentioned this earlier too uh deep space nine novels right now don't have a lot of deep space nine in them at least some of them don't and then uh, the Enterprise, the Rise of the Federation novels. The Enterprise is in some museum somewhere. So, you know, there's kind of this uh, tendency to not have the named ship in the actual book. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the next generation novels that don't have a generation. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, it's been fun talking about Discovery without Discovery today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the Trek FM network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. I'd like to see a starship where the chief medical officer is a Tellarite oh. <laughs> and see his bedside manner. I'll see, I'll see your your crappy Lewis Zimmerman hologram <laughs> right. amalgamation and raise you a Tellarite doctor. Yeah. Uh-huh. The 602 Club. This is such an incredible beachhead in terms of what they do with what we've come to expect now with like the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy or resurrecting Peter Cushing. Warp 5. We share about 50% of our DNA with a banana. So I think we're a bit yeah. closer to... 
to reptiles uh, than 50%. But still, no, you're, I, yeah, I, so what I, you're I saying is it's possible to have an intelligent banana. Um, I'm not saying that. I'm just and saying 50% that. 50% banana. To the journey! Bullions don't have a lot of hair. That we know of. So, I mean, we've never seen a shirtless bullion, have we? Not that I can recall, unless it would be in sick bay or something like that, but I can't recall an incident of a shirtless bully. <laughs> How do you know that they're not hairy-chested? I kind of love the idea that, like, from the neck down, they're covered in hair, but they're bald on top. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And you know what? If you do, we'll probably read it here on the show. And if you're not an Apple user, well, you can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. And you just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details on how you can do that. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And those are all available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. And we would really appreciate any support you can give us. And we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And if you like this conversation, you can join the larger conversation in the Babel Conference. And it's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should go right to the group. And if you'd like to send us an email, all you have to do is go to our website at trek.fm slash contact. You'll fill out the form and uh, choose the show of Literary Treks, and your email will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Of course, Literary Treks is all about Star Trek books, and we keep track of those books on our Goodreads group. We have bookshelves there with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what's coming up for future shows. You can follow along there. And there are also great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group, and one of us will let you right in. We'd like to take this moment to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chamutella, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not remotely taking control of a fleeing ship by using its prefix code, where can we find you? Well, you can find me hiding because I don't want to be caught doing that. But you can also find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast at StarWarsReport.com. And uh, you can go back and listen to our Live from the Edge 
shows that we did immediately after each episode of Discovery. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. And Dan, when you're not trying to disguise yourself so no one discovers that you're an executioner where you've shaved your head and your beard and your mustache, where can people find you? (laughs) Well, thankfully, I think you might have me confused with someone else because this face don't grow no beard nor mustache. Can you grow a beard? Not not one that looks any good. (laughs) Let me just put it that way. So you can always be assured that I am not a mass executioner, nor am I from the mirror universe. So that's always good. But when I'm not worried about my facial hair troubles, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, where I make videos talking mostly about Star Trek and on facebook.com slash Productions, as well as in the Babel Conference, talking about Star Trek. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.